Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing well and I hope you're feeling the smile of God on you today or tonight, whenever you're watching this. And if you're not, uh, maybe this lesson is for you. And actually, you know, I, I think the lesson is for any of us, even if we are uh, feeling the smile of God upon us. Um, we are at lesson 12 in our study of Job, nearing the end. Um, before we get into it, though, I want to point out, you know, in a Sunday school setting, uh, if you have a bunch of people in the room together, it, it's not impossible that God might speak uh, something profound to just about anybody in the room. And of course, we don't have the opportunity with this remote setup to have a, uh, uh, an immediate feedback, if, if that turns out to be the case. But I want to encourage you, if you do feel God speaking to you or inspiring you, uh, as we all together come together to seek him. Um, if you feel like you'd like to share that with somebody, here's my email address, duganja at comcast.net. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, no, uh, it's not necessary, but if you feel like God's leading you to, to say something, then uh, please let me know. Also, Mike Davis, Michael Davis, has requested that if you have any feedback about uh, this uh, lesson or the, how the courses are going, he'd like to hear from you too about uh, feedback on our remote Sunday school lessons. His email address is here, mdavis at cbcjc.org. So we've got that out of the way, let's begin. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God, is all-powerful, and if he loves us, why is there suffering in the world? That's the question explored in the book of Job. Now, we've already seen that Job is considered righteous by God. We've seen him suffering in a big way, and we've heard his friends offer their views on why Job is suffering and what he should do about it. <clears throat> Last week, we started, and today we continue with learning about God's answer. But before we get to God's answer, what are your thoughts <clears throat> on this question? Do you have any ideas about it? There's a whole category of theology called theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. And it's devoted to studying this very question. A lot of scholars have proposed many different, very intelligent answers. And when I was in college... I once started writing a song called God's Answer to Job. And I know it's not the catchiest title for a song, but the idea was this. It would be a love song that a guy would sing to a girl. And he'd sing about how there's so much suffering in the world and how could God let that happen? And God would answer him with, okay, so there's a lot of suffering going on. And then God would point to the girl and he'd say, but in my defense, I also made her. Now, you may not believe this, but with all of those very intelligent scholars working on this difficult question all over the centuries, as far as I'm aware, not one of them ever came up with that particular approach to the question. Now, of course, there's probably a good reason for that. Fortunately, my understanding has matured some over the years, and I have been able to formulate a sense of how suffering could exist in a world created by a just and loving God. What I've come up with 
does a better job of satisfying my sense of who God is and how reality works. My answer has to do with things like free will and the ideas that God has given Satan the temporary dominion over some of creation and that no one is free of sin. What about you? Do you have some answers of your own? Well, now let's hear God's answer and see how our answers measure up. We're going to start with uh, in Job chapter 40, reading verses 6 through 9 to start. And this is how it goes. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Wow, well, that's impressive. Uh, the NIV says that God is speaking from a storm. The NASB, which is actually a more accurate translation, calls it a whirlwind, which presumably is either a hurricane or a tornado. <clears throat> and it's not too much of a stretch, I think, to imagine flashes of lightning striking the ground near Job as God speaks. Boom, now you put on your big boy pants and least let's see what you can teach me. Crash, boom. It's pretty intimidating. And God continues in verses 15 through 19. Let's read those. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. And then further in the first 11 verses of chapter 41. Turn here. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make any supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will your traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Boom! Crash! Wow! So, how does that answer compare with the answers that you've had for the problem of suffering? I didn't find my answers in there anywhere. Do you? There's a lot to unpack here, but Let's take care of this first. Do you know what a behemoth or a leviathan are? 
No, I, I don't either, uh, nor does anyone else know for certain. Sometimes people read this passage and get tangled up in a debate about whether the behemoth is a hippo or a dinosaur, and, or whether the Leviathan is a crocodile or a dragon. But God's answer to, answer to Job has nothing to do with these debates. The fundamental concept in this passage is about who God is and who Job is, or rather who he is not. At the beginning of God's diatribe from last week's lesson in chapter 38, God starts out with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, for me, just that beginning question tells me everything I need to know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God has firmly put Job in his place. And me too, right? Because God's not speaking only to Job here, is he? The whole reason this book has meaning for us is because we take the role of Job in the story. But if that's all the explaining I need, well, God's still not done. He starts there and then he goes on and on and on, possibly using thunder and lightning as punctuation. He goes on for four whole chapters, challenging Job as to whether he's anywhere near the level of a God who has the power to create and control all of the wonders of the universe. And in our lesson today, to subdue even the most powerful creatures anyone has ever encountered. We haven't read more than just a sampling of God's whole answer, but I'd encourage you to go back and read all four chapters, chapters 38 and 39, 40 and 41. It's really impressive. And I think that's probably part of what God intends is to make that impression. So beyond the immediately obvious message in this passage, though, that there are a few subtle points that God weaves into his argument that serve to reinforce the message and to make it even more personal. To start with, look at verse 15 in chapter 40. God's saying, this magnificent beast that strikes you with awe? I made it out of nothing. I made not just the animal, but the concept of the animal, even the concept of existence. That's the message that you get on the first pass. But I think it's easy to skip over the part where God says, as well as you. It's like God is saying, you think you can make one of these? Of course you don't. But even if you were so foolish, I made you too. And then in verse 19, the, in the NIV, it says, it ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. So God is powerful enough to do as he pleases with this creature, with no chance that the creature could overpower God. But there's a subtle implication here. If the creature is too powerful for mankind to control it, then how much more is it true that God has the power to do with us as he pleases? If he decides we will suffer, what recourse do we have? Now, look, let's look at verse 3 in chapter 41. In the NIV, it says, it ranks first among the words of God, yet its maker can approach it with, its, with his sword. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> that was the verse we just looked at. 
in chapter 41, verse 3, talking about the Leviathan. Uh, in the NIV, this reads, will it keep begging you for mercy? And then in verse 4, in the NASB, it says, will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Now, on the first raid, it's clear that God's referring to one of his creatures that's so powerful and fearful that Job will never hear pleas of mercy from it. It's ludicrous to think that the more powerful being would cry for mercy to the less powerful. But what is it that Job has been doing for 35 chapters leading up to this? He's been seeking mercy from God, crying out for mercy. The testimony of Job's own cries bears witness to his knowledge that God is powerful and he is not. Similarly, making covenants and taking servants, these are the prerogatives of God and not mankind. In verse 10, in the NASB, it says, will you be hurled down even at the sight of him? So, if the sight of Leviathan is so terrifying that it would cause Job to be thrown to the ground, what happens if Job encounters God? And of course, that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible when people have a close encounter with God, falling prostrate before him is essentially an automatic reflex because of the overwhelming contrast between his holiness and our unworthiness. Then finally, in verse 10, God lays it on the line. If you're smart enough not to challenge the monster I created, how can you be dumb enough to challenge me? And I like the way the NASB sets verse 11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So what's your reaction to this? You know, there are a lot of Bible verses that speak of the fear of God. And often, you'll hear people talking about how it really means to respect God or to honor him. And I do believe those, are, those interpretations are, are right. I do believe, too, that God does not want us to serve him only because we're terrified of punishment if we don't. But I think this scene makes it clear that Actual fear in its basic meaning is an appropriate part of our attitude toward God. We should trust him. We should love him. We should rely on him for all that is good. And at the same time, we should fear him if we are to know him as he is. So is that the takeaway from this lesson, to fear God? Nope. You remember, we started out looking for God's answer to the question about suffering, especially, quote, unquote, undeserved suffering. And we hear God respond, but what's the answer? I got to tell you, I find this to be one of the most thrilling things you'll find anywhere in the Bible. God responds to Job's complaint with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes on a four-chapter-long diatribe that undisputably, irrevocably puts Job in his place. Boiled down, God's answer is, who are you to ask me?
So what kind of an answer is that? Do we now somehow finally have the formula that we can apply to our various situations and have an intellectually satisfying understanding of why we suffer? No, we do not. And from what I can infer from the book of Job, we're not gonna get that formula either. We do know a few things that are wrong in chapter, that are wrong answers. In chapter 42, verse seven, God says that Job's first three friends were wrong in their theories. In John, in the New Testament, book of John chapter nine, Jesus says that a blind man's suffering is not a direct result of his sin. Also, it's possible that some of the things we think about the reason, uh, the reason for suffering may actually touch on the truth since God doesn't really debunk some of them here, but I wouldn't trust that line of reasoning, reasoning too much because we do actually have this answer from God on the subject and it doesn't affirm any of them. And in the 55th chapter of Isaiah, of course, God tells us his thoughts and his ways are greater than ours. Which is not to suggest, I think, that God wants us to never question anything. I think learning is one of the best ways to know God better. And I believe he encourages us to learn about his creation and his ways. But I think God sees a more important issue to address here. It's sort of like, a 10-year-old boy that comes to his father and says, Dad, can you help me with a problem I'm having? Sure, son, what is it? Well, I need to know how to teach a bird how to fly. You need to what? Well, I saw a penny in the road, and when I went to pick it up, a car was coming, and it swerved to the side and hit the maple tree in our yard, and the tree fell onto the power line, and there was a fire in the tree and a baby bird jumped out of its nest and landed on the ground and it can't fly and I'm worried that a cat might eat it. So how do I teach that bird to fly? Now in that situation, is the dad gonna tell the boy how to teach a bird to fly? <laughs> of course not. There are more important things that need to be addressed first. So if we wanna know about the problem of suffering, we're still sort of lost, right? I don't think so, because you know what? The answer that God does give is so amazing that it completely overcomes my need to understand exactly why suffering exists. First, it strikes me as true, not just true with a capital T, but truth, true with all of the letters capitalized. It seems true in the way that Jesus says, I am the truth. It's true at a level that even the problem of suffering is not. When I understand what God's telling me about his magnificence, his power, his holiness, I'm so awed and so thrilled that while I'm focused on him, I feel like I can endure or overlook any suffering. Not that we should overlook suffering. And I also recognize that Achieving that level of enthrallment is going to be harder when I'm actually enduring real suffering, which I'm not at the moment. But even so, I feel like God's answer to Job is more satisfying than any answer that could give us that explanation we were hoping for. It's, it's sort of like a visit to the Alps on a foggy day. 
you're driving along and seeing nothing but the gray fog all around and, and maybe your car gets a flat tire. You get out to fix it and you're getting dirty and sweaty and you're kicking the dirt and having a little pity party there on the road because your dream vacation is just turning to mud. And then when you look up, the fog has lifted and you're enveloped in a, a miracle. You're so focused on your suffering a minute ago. Where has that gone? Speaking of the Alps, it seems to me that mountains like the Rockies or the Alps or the Himalayas are in some ways like Catholic mountains, while the mountains where we live are more like Baptist mountains. And what I mean that by that is that Baptist traditions tend to emphasize God's love and intimacy and his personal attention to each individual. And that's sort of how our mountains are. They're smaller, but they're friendlier and more intimate. Their greatest beauty is experienced when you get deep into them, like on a forested trail alongside a mountain stream. In contrast, rocky, snow-capped mountains are more majestic, more breathtaking, but also colder and inaccessible and probably most impressive from a distance, which is more in line with the way many Catholic traditions focus on God's sovereignty and majesty and unapproachability. The Catholic tradition taken to excess risks missing the tenderness and intimacy that God offers us. And the Baptist tradition taken too far risks being too casual with God, as if he's just another buddy or even a pet. I think the truest picture of God is both at the same time, not taking either to excess. But the lesson in Job is definitely about those Catholic mountains. Here's the biggest reason I love this passage so much. If we didn't have this lesson in the Bible as a starting point, I think the rest of it might not matter. I'm actually just beginning to work this out for myself, so please don't accept this without scrutiny. I could be missing something important, but I think God's sovereignty may be the single most important concept in the Bible. I, th I think the most fundamental verse in the Bible may not be John 3.16, but the second half of John, 1 John 4.8, God is love. And studying Job, I think maybe the first two words of that sentence are even more fundamental. God is. This is the third person expression of God's own name for himself, I am. So I think it's the right place to start for everything else that follows. The fact that he is, is all we need to worship him. Even if he were a tyrant who amused himself by tormenting his creation, he'd still be God. And I imagine we would still be compelled by what's right to worship him. After all, even our sense of right comes from God. But of course, he's not a tyrant who delights in torture. If we start with God is, we complete it with God is love. 
in a way, those three words are like experiencing the Rockies and the Appalachian Mountains all at once. And to the extent that I understand it, it seems to me that Islam has a pretty good view of God's sovereignty and his majesty and his holiness. Islam's response to the gospel is that it can't be true because God's far too holy, far too unapproachable, far too magnificent to debase himself so much as to become human, much less to allow himself to be judged and rejected and murdered by sinful men and women. And as far as that goes, I think they're right about that. God is. And there's nothing we have to say about that. But there's one thing, obviously, that the Muslims miss, and it's that, that third word, God is love. And only because God is, he also has the power to overcome raw justice with love even to the extent of debasing himself and dying to save the object of that love. Because God is sovereign enough to respond to us with, who are you to ask? He is also sovereign enough to reconcile us to himself with his sovereign act of love. And in the first six verses of chapter 42, we see the beginning of that reconciliation with Job. Let's read those. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? This is Job quoting God's question to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job responds to that question. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And again, he quotes God's question. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask thee and do thou instruct me. And Job's responding then to God's question. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. As I said earlier, God is put Job in his place. Is this an act of abuse? I don't think it is. For the reasons I've laid out today, I think it looks more like an act of love. At this moment in the story, Job's place is in repentance, repentance, sitting in on dust and ashes. Now, that's not a pleasant place, but it can be a desirable place because it is the place that God has determined is right. God has designed the universe and all of history with perfect precision. Our sin breaks that design and our faithful obedience conforms to it. At this moment, sitting in repentance and dust and ashes, Job fits perfectly into God's design. Whether it's comfortable or not, whether it leads to more pain or to healing, there is no better place that Job can be than in the center of God's will. So if God puts me in my place, well, where is my place anyway? Isn't it the place in creation that God in his wisdom and in his love 
made me to be a perfect fit? Isn't it the place where I can most perfectly fulfill my purpose? If only I could be put in that place and stay there without having to seek it out through a swamp full of fear and temptations and distractions. God, put me in my place. Put me where I can see you and love you perfectly. Help me to find the way. And when I can't understand why you're leading me this way or that, remind me, even if it humbles me, and even if I suffer, remind me that you are God and I am not. And that as long as that's true, it's all I really need to know. Amen.